I want to tell you a preacher story as we start today. You've been here long enough. Most of you know what a preacher story is, right? There's no truth in it. It just makes for a good point. Um, and I don't know if there's truth in this one or not. I know that I more or less on the organ side up close. She popped up with our son and started marching him down the side towards the back. Now, I knew that that meant somebody was fixing to meet the Lord in a very clear way. And my son apparently recognized that too. He was maybe three or four at the time. And as he's going out, he yelled out in church, I don't want to go outside. Now, that's because he had been outside before and he knew what was waiting for him out there. That leads me to the preacher story I want to tell, and I'm not sure that this is true or not, but it, uh, it certainly does make the point. In the exact same scenario, a lady was having it with her kid, and so popped up in the middle of the service and started marching him out the back like that, and he put his hands on the wall, and as his mom was dragging him out, he yelled out, allegedly, y'all pray for me. So probably not true, but it does make the point that we're shooting for today, and that is one of the elements of church life for us is that we tend to talk about prayer a lot. We build it into our services, and even in our casual conversations with people, we often, at church at least, throw in, pray for me or I'll pray for you, and it's a good thing. Um, but here's a question for us to kind of guide our thinking today. What governs your prayer life for people? So in your intercessory prayer, as you pray for other people, what governs that? Another way to ask that question is, how do you pray for other people? How do you know how to pray for other people? So as part of these placemats that you're going to get, the world uh, hunger offering that we're talking about, the emphasis this month. Uh, there are a, a few prayer prompts that are on that placemat that you will get. We have, as a church, by the way, I approve those, so I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say in a couple of minutes here. Uh, we have, this summer, we have put together some prayer guides for our church with so many different mission activities going on through the summer. We thought one of the good ways to keep it in front of each of us as church members so that we might pray for those things is to have this prayer guide. And so that's out there, and I proved that, so I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say in a minute or two. But uh, the, the reality is that we have these prayer prompts that we get. I, I got one just this morning from somebody at a different church uh, I've been praying for a friend of mine. He's a pastor in the eastern part of the United States, and he's been going through a tragic situation in his life, and his divorce is just a couple of days away from being finalized. And when he first contacted me and a handful of others who are, who are serious friends of his, spiritual friends, uh, he said, I need you to pray for me. Well, of course, we would do that. But about once a week, he'll send us a text message that gives us prayer prompts. How should I pray for this? Now, my encouragement to you is that we understand those are important. We also allow them to be part of our prayer lives. But the reality is that many times the way I pray for people who ask me to pray for them, 
is nowhere near what they tell me I need to pray for them. When we come to talk about prayer, we get a, it's a little bit dicey. Oh, excuse, that's not very preachery. It's a, it's a little bit questionable for us sometimes. Because all of us pray, uh, even as young children, we're taught to pray, like now I lay me down to sleep, and I don't remember the rest of it. Um, or we pray over dinner, or we just pray generally speaking. But when it comes to praying for other people, how can we pray for maximum effect? I would suggest to you that Colossians chapter 1, Paul gives us some insights into his prayer life that help us as we pray for other people. Paul, in this little section we're about to read, Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 9 in a few moments, but in this little section, Paul rehearses how he has been praying for the Christians at Colossae. I want to read verses 9 through 14. We're only going to unpack verse 9 today because verse 9 actually is the central part of this entire passage. If you envision a tree, verse 9 is the trunk, and it will have branches and leaves and fruit that will grow off of that, but the trunk, the central part, is what drives the rest of it. The rest of it can't be there unless the trunk is there. Verse 9 is that trunk for us. Follow as I read Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 9 provides the central thought of that entire passage. In the original language, it's one long sentence with all of these pieces that follow verse 9 as modifiers to what Paul is saying in verse 9. In other words, we're going to cover verse 9 today, hopefully, and then we're going to take the rest of the month of July to cover the rest of that 9 through 14 section but we have to get the central part of it right. How do you pray for other people for maximum effect? I'm going to suggest to you three different kinds of prayers today or three different ways to pray or approaches to prayer that I think may do us better to build as a pattern rather than just praying for someone's comfort or health. So with that in mind, here's the first one. The first approach to prayer that Paul gives us here is that we should practice prayer that kills spiritual lethargy. You understand the term lethargy? I had a son, I have a son, I, I have two sons actually, but one of them is the dictionary definition of lethargy when he was a teenager. My son uh, loved to do nothing. As a matter of fact, I would say, what are you doing? Nothing. I, I came to respond to that with, what, do you need some help? <laughs> he didn't want any help. 
I taught him a better way of life, to, I mean, at least to be able to live in my house, and that was you can't just sit around and do nothing all the time. You have to work. So you can work in my house for nothing, or you can go get a job and get money for that. Either way, you're not going to get to just hang around and do nothing. Lethargy, that approach to life um, that essentially says, I'm just going to kick back here and it's all going to just be fine. Somebody stopped me after the early service today and they said, so, so I'm going con- to do what you said on the spiritual side of it, but I'm going to continue my physical lethargy if that's okay with you. I suggested he might talk to his wife about that, but another story totally. So practice prayer that kills spiritual lethargy. We get this from the background of this little passage. We've been in the book of Colossians now for a little while, and so you should be aware, and I'll remind you if you're not, that Paul writes to the Colossian churches there, the Christians, home churches where they were meeting, because Paul is concerned about heresy and this this building sense of opposition to the gospel that comes in the way of watering down the truth that they knew from the beginning. Epaphras is the one who Paul cites in this as being the one who kind of got the word out to Paul about it. And, and so these churches, these Christian people in Colossae, uh, had come to know the Lord not through Paul's ministry but through someone else's. But Paul sees the danger of what's going on there, so he writes this letter to them to help them fight against that tendency towards heresy. Now, here's where it comes home for us, I think. Our tendency, well, before I get to the tendency, let me just say this. You and I regularly come up against different approaches, philosophies, thought patterns that lean towards heresy. In the world in which we live, you don't have to work at finding something that pollutes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we get it in all different kinds of ways, even in church circles. I was reading an article this morning about some of the controversy that's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, especially as it relates to a conservative political move and how some preachers now are squaring off about that. And I would suggest to you that one of those heresies that we have to watch out for, the ones that none of us would just buy into outright, but it kind of worms its way into our thinking, is to raise our political viewpoints and ideologies above the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the moment that that gets more important or a deeper say in what we believe, then we are guilty of watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ and maybe walking away from it. I'm not being political. I'm trying to be Christian about this to say that no matter who is president or what governor or senators or representatives, no matter who fills the political offices, Jesus is king. Now, with that in mind, we have to be careful that inside the church, we don't get that out of balance. Now, here's where I get all of this and where I want to go with it, is to not jump into some false gospel. Now, some people, that is their tendency. But those of us who know Jesus Christ, who call on the name name of Jesus as Savior and Lord, we, we, as a rule, we don't just jump off in believing a bunch of garbage. But spiritual lethargy opens the door for us to slip into it. 
It's not that I want to jump into believing something that is clearly contrary to the gospel. But when I start feeling comfortable about Christianity and feeling comfortable about my spiritual condition, and I stop paying attention to the danger that's out there, then it becomes easy to just slide into some kind of heresy in my everyday life. We don't jump at it. We just slip into lethargy at times. Maybe the best historical church kind of an example I can give you relative to that are the days, the years before World War II. In Germany, as the German church began to get co-opted into the Nazi rhetoric and worldview, and before it was all said and done, those Christians in the German church became complicit with Adolf Hitler and those people who were part of his machine. And before it was all said and done, that same church became part of that system. And the good news of Jesus Christ was lost in the shuffle. We cannot be guilty of spiritual lethargy. And yet, it is one of the greatest temptations of our time. I believe that Satan is so wise in the way he approaches. It might sound strange for me to say it that way. But so wise in the way he approaches us, he knows that we won't just jump off into something that's flagrantly wrong. And so he lets us feel comfortable about what is okay. And before you know it, we've slipped off. So one of the ways to pray for other people is that we pray that God heightened their sense of awareness to what's going on around them. I believe that God has the unique ability to communicate truth and light in the darkest of dark places. And when I fail in dealing with friends of mine who I know need to know Jesus Christ, I still believe even though I might fail there, God doesn't fail in his approach. And so we pray for others. We pray for ourselves that we don't slip into some casual approach to Christianity and some heretical view that says, well, we're basically okay here. So verse 9, we pick up again now. Now we'll start drilling down a little bit. That's from the general part of what Paul has done. He doesn't want them to slip into this heresy. So he says, in two words used in verse 9, that form the push for us. I have not, or we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, and then, so those two words work together here. Those are the two primary verbs that drive the whole little section here. Paul says, I've been praying for you. And lest we have to wonder what Paul means when I, he says, I've been praying for you. He says, here's what I've been praying. I've been asking. And then he lays out his requests. Essentially, what Paul is praying for them is that they stay true to the gospel. It's not a bad prayer for your kids. Some of us have reached that point in life where our kids are adults And if they didn't listen to us when they were teenagers, they certainly don't listen to us now that they're adults. But you know, God has a way of speaking into their situations that they can't ignore. It's one of the best ways to pray for your kids or your parents or your neighbors 
is that they would know the truth, and especially those who know the truth already, that they would stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not be satisfied with some watered-down approach to prayer and some watered-down, shallow, arrested development in our spiritual growth. One thing we can be sure of, there's always more with God. God can always take us to another level. How long has it been since you prayed that God would take you to another level in your life with him? Is that part of your prayer life, or are you kind of settled back going, well, you know, it's all good. I've got enough of an inoculation against all this stuff that, that I feel good. How long since you prayed that God would take you to another level? And how long, have, how, how long has it been since you prayed that for other people. You see, this gets in the way when we start praying that God would heal somebody or that God would help them feel better or that God would take care of that situation with them because sometimes God uses those very illnesses and situations to get the environment right for those people to be willing to make the move to go further with him. We get complacent. So the first prayer is the one that kills spiritual lethargy. Here's the second one. This is the prayer that positions us to hear God. We take this from that little clause. Paul says, we pray this asking that you may be filled. We'll get to what he's talking about as far as the filling goes, but the reality is what he's saying here is that that filling is a matter of the Spirit of God. We pray that you may be filled. It's a spiritual thing. Let me explain that. I'll back off a little bit and and put it together in, in the scheme, if you will, the flow of salvation for us. Our sin, my sin and your sin, separate us from a holy God. We are created for a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, with God and Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, in the flesh, 100% God, and at the same time human, Jesus Christ is the fix for our sin problem. And that sin that separates us from God, Jesus Christ is sent into the world to correct our sin problem. And so when we come to our senses, if you will, and we recognize who he is, why he's here, why that's important, and how that applies to our life, the right response to him is to place our faith in him and receive the gift of love, salvation, and forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, part of what Scripture tells us is that when we take that step and we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the fix for our sin problem, fixes the relationship that's been broken, That gives us a future in heaven. It fixes our broken past, but in the now of that, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in us. Now, among other things, one of the great truths about that is that we now have God's Spirit as he tells us and gives us guidance about how to do this thing called life. Paul's digging into that in this part of this little verse. I'll read it again. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's the next point for us. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, the only way you get to know God's will 
is by the Spirit letting you know. That sounds easy, right? Well, it sounds easy, but it doesn't always come off that easy for us because when we settle into this shallow approach that says, I'm good, I, I have the basic stuff, my eternity is sealed, I don't have to worry about hell, I call that fire insurance. I don't have to worry about that because I know this is in place, and so I'm good right now. I don't really need to do this whole growth thing that you're talking about, preacher. Well, the reality is Paul's saying the primary function that they need to nail down is to know God's will, and it only comes through God's Spirit enlightening us about those things. Here's some implications of that for us. The first one is that we need to position ourselves so that we can hear. Now, there's some pieces of this that we probably don't have time to get into, but let me, let me make sure that we get this right. I, I, when I was a youth minister, one of the things that used to really frustrate me as I tried to teach teenagers how to listen for the Holy Spirit in their lives to help them with the things of their lives I would often have parents who would come in. I don't try to make anybody mad here, so I don't want to offend anybody or anything like that. Um, I wasn't youth minister in this church, so I'm not talking about you, okay? Um, but I'd be talking to teenagers about listening for the voice of God and, and knowing things that they need to know about how to live their daily lives. And, and oftentimes in church, what we do is we get these big, okay, I want to know what God wants in these big things, okay? What career should I follow? What career path should I follow? Um, you know, what, what do I, where do I need to put my money? Uh, those kind of things. So I'd deal with teenagers, and I would ask them, juniors and seniors, where are you going to go to college? And they would say whatever they would say. I, li I was youth minister in different parts of the country. It's amazing how many of them automatically were going to some school in that part of the country. But more amazing was I would ask middle school kids, so where do you think you might go to college? Oh, I've already decided. I said, really? Where are you going? And they would tell me. And I'd say, what made you decide to go there? Oh, that's where my dad went. That's where my grandmother went. And I said, okay. So is that where God wants you to go? Okay, I can tell her this is too personal. So let's just move on to a different deal. What does God want for you in your life? You know, those, those are big questions. Where you go to college matters. I get this a lot when I'm dealing with people who want to get married. All right, so if you're here today and you're wanting to get married, I'm going to give you a piece of my premarital counseling right now, okay? So I, I, it's always, it's, I've said this before, it's just sickening to be around people who are newly engaged. It's just sickening. Oh, that's, we're just, so I say, why do you want to get married? Well, we just love each other. I said, no, but really, why do you want to get married? Um, and part of it is because I don't want to let them off easily, right? Because all of that sweet, sappy garbage, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, that, all of that, you know, need to be in love stuff, about the second day after the wedding, a lot of that stuff is gone already, right? Because you didn't do the toothpaste tube right, all of a sudden we have problems, but you're already married at that point, right? And so in my premarital counseling, sometimes I try to just be real and say, okay, so... So I say to the woman, for instance, you're going to marry him? Why would you marry him? 
have you not met him? And she, in, invariably, she'd get offended. Well, well, I love him. Okay, we'll talk about that. And I'll say to him, and so you think she's really going to marry you, huh? You, you think you have what it takes for her to marry you? And he'll talk around that. You know one of the questions that I ask them that often decides whether I would do their wedding or not? Where's God in this decision for you? You know, I've had more people not be able to answer that, correct, that question correctly than I have ones who do. For something as serious as marriage, and you don't know that God's for this in your life? So knowing the will of God hits us at a lot of different points. But if we're not careful, we limit it to those big decisions. Like, which house should I buy? Which part of town should I buy it in? Which career path should I follow? Should I marry this person or not? Which college should I go to? We do all those kind of things. But you know, the reality is a day-to-day life, we don't have those big decisions that happen very often. But every day you have the decision, how am I going to speak to this person in the office that eats my lunch every day? How am I going to handle this neighbor of mine who is suffering through life and needs Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time their dog is driving me crazy barking all night long? The will of God is not limited to some big, huge decision somewhere for you. It's the daily stuff. It's the how do I hear this today? Where is God in my life today? So Paul says to this group of people, I'm praying that God would fill you with the understanding of his will. So you have to position yourself. In those little things, sometimes, you know, we we get a little frustrated because we don't really know, God, what what do you want me to do here? Well, here's a good truth for you to remember. God doesn't like playing guessing games with his children. If you seriously want to know God's will for your life, ask him. And if you don't get an answer yesterday, then keep asking him. Because he doesn't want you to go through life so that somewhere in the backside of a decision, somewhere he can smack you in the head and go, ha, ha, you should have figured that out earlier. God doesn't do us that way. He wants you to know the daily approach for your life. Or at least remain in position. Case in point. There's a couple of elements of that, and we'll start, start drawing this down. But when I moved to East Texas, uh, I bought a house out there, and on this house were, I don't know, I, I used to know the exact number. I've been gone long enough now. I don't remember exactly. Over 20 pine trees. Now, if you don't know what a pine tree is, um, Big, tall, green, you know. Um, I had 20 of those on my property, which was just a, a basic lot with a house on it. And so I called the network, the, the dish network people to come out. I'm not endorsing them. I'm just telling you that's who I was using. Called the guy out and I said, hey, I, I want this service to put a dish on the house. And so he did that. He came in in, in no time, 15, 20 minutes, maybe something like that. He came in. He says, I, I can't get a signal. I said, well, I'm pretty sure that your competitor can, so you want to try one more time? And so he went out. He was out for a while. He came back, and he says, okay, I found what the problem is. I said, okay, what is it? He said, you see that tree right there? It was in my neighbor's yard. And he said, the satellite that we have to hook to 
or connect with is just above that treetop. And he said, I had to really work to get it. And he said, I'm telling you, I have it now, but within two or three years that that tree continues to grow, you're not going to have the ability to get a satellite signal. What I want you to get from that little illustration is that that satellite dish had to be pointed in the right direction to receive the signal that was coming from the satellite. And if there was something that was in the way of that satellite signal, then it wasn't going to function properly. It's not really a whole lot different than it is for us in our day-to-day Christian life. We need to create an environment where the Holy Spirit, who indwells us as children of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit can speak to us in such a way that we hear him. But so often, we're out of position. We allow things into our daily lives that short-circuit that signal, if you will. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's an attitude problem. Maybe we're just mad at somebody. Maybe we're depressed. Maybe any number of things that get in the way of us hearing what the Holy Spirit has to say to us and giving us that day-to-day direction in our lives. I love it the way one man said, that the Holy Spirit of God, when he speaks to us, his slightest whisper should go off like a peal of thunder in our spirit. But when I let garbage stuff in, or I block it out with the noise of everyday life, and I don't hear it, then I might miss God's will. So we create an environment. We position ourselves. And with that... All of that says that we pray for ourselves and for others for positioning to hear what God has to say. The last element, and we're done, is that we should practice prayer that discerns God's will. Paul says, I'm praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. This is not some general knowledge. I'm reading a book. I started reading it right after I got here. It's called Border by Metz a local guy, about a local situation, right? The southern border. So I started reading that because I wanted to know about the area in which I'm living, right? And so I'm, I'm making about two or three pages a week with that because uh, I'm reading other books too. But one of the things it's done for me is it's given me a general knowledge of the area. Yesterday, I drove out. My wife's out of town, and uh, so I had to do some things. And so while I was out, I thought, I think I'm going to go exploring a little bit. So I started driving west, You know what I found? Nothing. There's nothing out there. It's just west. (laughs) And and I was flashing back to some of the pieces of that book that I read as they were trying to map the southern boundary of the United States and deal with that with Mexico. And, And I was thinking about that as I was driving out there. I have a general knowledge of the southwestern United States that does not change my life on a day to day basis. That's not the kind of knowledge Paul's talking about here that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. That word knowledge there is experiential. It is that you might be filled with the knowledge that comes from experience of what God's will is for you. I'll say it to you this way. If you want to know the best way to get to the top of this mountain over here, if you want to get to Mammoth Trunk, I can put you in contact with a few men in our church and women 
who know how to get there, not because they saw it on a trail map, but because they've been there time and time and time again. That's the word that Paul uses here. And he doesn't want you to just taste that kind of will, knowledge. He wants you to be filled with it. Now, what that word means, filled, means in the original language? It means to be filled. It's amazing. It means to be filled. What would life be like if you knew fully what God wanted from you today? If you knew without question how God wanted you to go through this day? Would that be different than what you have now? What about those people in your life that you're praying for? Is it more important that they feel better today or that they have a confident knowledge based on experience of what God's plan is for their life? What are you praying for? How are you praying? Let's pray. And Father, we come recognizing that this might well stretch some of us. Too often we make prayer complicated and, and just miss it. We don't want to do that here, Father. We believe that what Paul is saying to us and this example that he's given to us is one that has legs in our lives each day. So we pray that you would help us to pray this way for ourselves. That before we pray for our comfort and before we pray for our prosperity and before we pray for those other things that dominate our prayer lives, Father, that we would first come and say, please let me know what you want me to do today. And in the process of doing that, that you would so impress on us the value of that, that it would be the natural prayer that we have for other people. Father, we pray at this moment that those people who don't know Jesus Christ, that, that base point of your will is that none would perish, but that all would have everlasting life. That's your will for all of us. And yet you give us the freedom to choose to accept that or to reject it. We pray that those who don't know you today would not reject it, but accept that gift through Jesus Christ right now. Father, help us to get this right. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.